all of history is headed, right? How does the biblical story end? It ends with the church, the full and the final people of God enjoying the presence of God forever in the kingdom of God, God's people living in God's place under God's rule. That is where history is headed. The church is not on the wrong side of history. The church of Jesus Christ will live forever and ever and she will be beautiful and glorious and full of people from all backgrounds and genders and ages and sexual backgrounds and races and cultures and groups. There is nothing, nothing, nothing in the whole world like the church. And that's why I'm so excited this week to be thinking about it together, to be thinking about what it means for people like you and me to be part of her, to belong to the church and what it means for you guys in particular to be faithful servants in the church for your whole lives, not just for a couple of years, for your whole lives, wherever it is that God might take you. And so over the course of this week, Dave's already told us, we're going to be thinking about different aspects of what it means to be part of the church. Each day we'll see something different about what it means to belong to the people of God. And I hope by the end of this week, as I've been thinking about it and praying for you guys as we've been preparing for this week, I want you to have a deeper appreciation for and love for the church. That you leave here on Friday lunchtime thinking, this is the single greatest privilege in my life, to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what I want, so that you'll be enthused to give your life for her in service. Before we look at Ephesians chapter two, which we're gonna read and then talk about in a moment, let me say a little bit about my own story. Um, as I get a little bit older and reflect upon my life, I've become absolutely convinced that I would not be a Christian today if it were not for the church. There have been lots of different things and people that have influenced me in both becoming a Christian and in growing as a Christian. Um, there have been many people who have influenced me, friends, mentors, my wife, ministers, my parents, siblings. All of those people have shaped and influenced me in my Christian life. There have been other times and experiences that have influenced me. At school, Scripture Union, whenever I was around your age, was very formative in my life. I then went and studied theology at Union College. That was a, an important step in my Christian formation. Um, I've read books that have shaped and influenced how I've thought about what it means to be a Christian. I've listened to sermons that have helped me. I've been to things like New Horizon and Livewire. They've all shaped and formed me. But nothing has shaped and formed me quite like the church. It has been the most significant influence in my Christian life. I've belonged to the same church for my whole life. I was baptized there, grew up there, was taught the faith there, took communion there for the first time, began my married life there, had my son baptized there. I have worked and served there for the past 10 years. Nothing has been more influential in my life than the church. I'm 31 years old now, right? Which means that I have been alive for, get this, 271,560 hours, thereabouts, right? 271,560 hours. Take it that you sort of spend a third of that time asleep, right? At uni, you spend definitely more than eight nights or eight hours a night asleep. You gotta, you gotta maximize your sleep when you're at uni because if and when you have kids, oh, eight hours in a row is just a luxury, right? So if I've spent eight hours a night asleep for those 271,000 hours, I've spent about 90,000 hours asleep, okay? But if I add up sort of being consistently at church for 31 years, morning and evening, each Sunday for say 50, 52 Sundays in a year, 50 Sundays in a year, let's say, that means I've spent about two and a half to 3,000 hours of my life in church, right? That equates to somewhere in and around 
10% of my entire existence on this planet has been spent in church, okay? Whether that's accurate or not, I'm not too sure. But that consistent habit has been something that has been deeply formative for me. And I am incredibly grateful for all of the different people that have spoken into my life and all of the different influences that I have had in my life. But I am so grateful and thankful for the church because nothing has shaped me more than she has. And I hope that over the course of this week, you'll be as enthusiastic and passionate about being part of the church whenever you're 31, 41, 51 as I am today. So having said all of that, we're going to look at our passage for today because we want to look at the Bible and have our thinking shaped by it. So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, can I encourage you to bring one each day? We're going to be looking at different passages and very much spending our time unpacking what it is that they're saying to us. It'll be really helpful if you're able to follow along as we do that. Um, If you don't have a Bible, flick up the app on your phone, Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 11 down to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to think a little bit about it together, okay? So Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse 11, and as we read this, we remember this is the word of God, right? So you can trust it completely. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we're going to be thinking about what it means to be part of the church. Keep that passage open in Ephesians chapter two because we're gonna look at it throughout the course of the morning together. One of the things that I want us to think about this morning is the importance of the declaration of peace, particularly in this passage, okay? One of the most momentous days at the end of World War II was the 15th of August in 1945. It's what was called Victory in Japan or VJ Day. It was 
the day really which marked the end of the Second World War. Victory in Europe Day had happened about three months earlier. The Nazis had been defeated, but the war went on for a few months in Japan in particular. And when Victory in Japan Day happened, it was a really momentous occasion. The relief that was felt throughout the Western world in particular was palpable. It sparked huge scenes of celebration right across the United Kingdom and the United States in particular. And this picture on the screen is a very famous one. It's taken in Times Square the day that uh, Victory in Japan was declared. And one magazine, one American magazine, commented on the end of the war. It said, Americans began celebrating as if joy had been rationed and saved up for the three years, eight months, and seven days since Sunday, December 7th, 1941. That was uh, the day that Pearl Harbor attacks happened. Joy had been rationed and saved up. The declaration of peace after such a brutal and terrifying and exhausting conflict brought much joy and celebration. The outbreak of peace is something incredibly powerful. You guys in Northern Ireland and your generation don't really appreciate that fully as perhaps your parents, your grandparents' generations might appreciate. But the outbreak of peace is something incredibly powerful. Something within the human heart longs to be at peace. War, conflict, those things dehumanize us. We're made to live peacefully with God and with one another. The Bible tells us, of course, that sin is the big problem in all of this. Sin destroys our relationship with God. It also destroys our relationships with one another. You know that, don't you? You know what it's like to fall out with your mates, to be in conflict with your parents, to fight with your brother and sister, to fall out with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Sin destroys our relationships with one another. It also destroys our relationship with God. And actually it destroys and distorts our relationship with the entire creation itself. Sin is the heart of the human problem. We need to be at peace with God and at peace with one another and at peace with the creation. But sin makes that impossible. And Paul here, when he's writing to the Ephesians, he speaks beautifully and powerfully about the peace which Jesus had secured for us in the gospel. So actually, if you look really closely, Jesus is referred to as our peace in these verses. Verse 15, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So here's the whole thrust of this passage. It's gonna be on the screen. Here's the, the two ideas that are driving this passage, I think. That Jesus is the one through whom we can be at peace with God, first of all. Jesus is the one through whom we can be at peace with God. And Jesus is the one through whom we can be at peace with one another. So Jesus is the one through whom we can be at peace with God. And he is the one through whom we can be at peace with one another. So there is both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the peace that Jesus has come to bring. He has come to form a new humanity who will be in right and correct, proper relationship with God, but he has also come to form a new humanity who will be defined by their peaceful relationships with one another and actually their loving and peaceful approach to even their enemies. There is both a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the peace that Jesus has come to bring. And so when we talk about what it means to be saved, to be part of the new humanity that Jesus has come to create. We need to think about both of these things together, okay? We need to think about both the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of what it means to be at peace with God and at peace with one another. Paul wants us to understand 
Both of these things, they both go together. We can't just be at peace with God and be okay at being in conflict with our brothers and sisters. That's not what it means to be a real Bible-believing Christian. Nor can we just have all the benefits of nice relationships with one another, but not really care whether or not our relationship with God is in proper standing. We need both of these things to go together. We need the vertical and the horizontal to be sorted. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning thinking about the vertical aspect of that relationship, what it means to be at peace with God, and then we'll spend a little bit of time thinking about the horizontal, but really Tuesday through Friday is going to be, be thinking about that, okay? So let's get stuck in and think about the vertical aspect then of our relationship with God. Context matters here. What's going on in the book of Ephesians? Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. It was a world-class city in its day. It's now part of modern-day Turkey at the time of writing. It was part of the Roman Empire. It was a center for trade and commerce. It was a big city. It was a city where people worshipped all kinds of gods, had all kinds of worldviews. It was a place that really, really needed to hear about Jesus. And Paul, being the apostle to the Gentiles, had the conviction that Ephesus was one such place where he wanted to minister and plant the church. And you can read all about him doing that in the book of Acts, chapter 19. That's where he plants the church in Ephesus and sees it established and grow. But when he's writing this letter, he's writing to a group of people who have become Christians from a a pagan Gentile background The New Testament authors, when they're writing, tend to distinguish between between two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were the the special people of God. We read about their story in the Old Testament. They're the ones who are rescued from Egypt. They get the Ten Commandments. They have kings like David, etc. The Gentiles really are everybody else, people who are outside of that special covenant community of faith, people who worship many different gods rather than the one true God. But in the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus, all of those old divisions between Jew and Gentile were broken down. Jesus had opened the way for all people to know God. And so both Jew and Gentile were able to be in proper relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So these Ephesians had become Christians, but they have become Christians from a pagan Gentile background. That's important for us to understand when we're trying to understand what Paul's saying in these verses. They are part of the new humanity that Jesus has come to create. They are part of the church, okay? So what does Paul do here? In explaining to them the vertical dimension of their salvation, he reminds them of something. So look at verses 11 and 12. He says, remember, in verse 11, and then he says it again at the start of verse 12, remember. He wants to remind them of something because he knows that they're prone to forget these things. And actually, I think that's true of us. If you've been a Christian for any length of time here this morning, the things that we're gonna look at this morning, you will be prone to forget. You'll be prone to think, yeah, it's not that big a deal. But actually, Paul wants us to remember. Remember what your life was like before you knew Jesus. That's what he's trying to do for these Ephesians. That's what he wants to do for us. And actually, he reminds them of five things, okay? So he reminds them that they were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Those are the five things that he reminds them of. So we're gonna think about those things together just for a few moments this morning and then hopefully move on to verse 13 and see why verse 13 is such good news for people like you and me, okay? So the five things. First of all then, separated from Christ. We can see these things, by the way, in verses and all in verse 12, okay? Separated from Christ. That was their biggest problem, okay? 
They were cut off from the one who could bring them peace. They were cut off from the only one who could make any sense of their lives. This was their biggest problem. You're all teenagers, right? It's kind of your job to have problems. You are just problematic by nature, okay? I'm not saying anything offensive there, right? I was a teenager and I was a problem to lots of people. It's kind of your job to have problems. But let me say something to you that's really important at the outset of this week. If you're not a Christian, then this is your biggest problem. You're separated from Christ. You might be thinking about lots of things in your life that are problematic right now. You might be thinking, I'm about to get results and I'm gonna fail my exams and that is gonna be a problem. You might be thinking, I'm about to go to uni and I'm not gonna be that great at my course and I'm worried about making friends and that is gonna be a problem. You might be thinking, I am single and that is a problem. You might be thinking, I've just got a message saying I've used up 80% of my data, that is a problem, right? You have lots of problems in your life, but if you're not a Christian, this is your biggest problem. It's that you are separated from the only one who can give you life and make sense of your life. And maybe you're here this week and your expectations of what's gonna happen at live are pretty low. You're thinking, yeah, I'm just gonna go and hang out and look at girls, look at guys, like I did whenever I came to Livewire. But maybe God has you here this week because he wants to deal with the biggest problem in your heart and life. I want you to be open to that possibility throughout the course of this week. So that's the first thing, separated from Christ. Second thing, excluded from citizenship in Israel. For these people, that meant that before they were Christians, they were excluded from being part of God's community of people. They lived outside of his gracious care and protection. They were cut off from him. They were cut off from the one who could give them meaning and purpose and identity in life. They were excluded. And not only were they excluded, next thing, they were foreigners to the covenant of promise. Covenants in the Old Testament were promises. And in particular, they were the means by which God promised blessing to his people. And the Gentiles were foreigners to such covenants. They were outside the covenant people and as such they were not in a position to receive God's blessings. They were on the outside looking in. Teenagers, you don't need me to tell you that that in lots of ways is your greatest fear. No one upon no one upon no one wants to be on the outside looking in. And yet in a, in a cosmic sense, right, if we are outside of Christ, that is your reality. You're on the outside looking in. You're on the wrong side of history if you're not a Christian. Separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope. Now, don't mishear me. It's not that they didn't have hopes and dreams. They did, I'm sure. It's that they didn't have any deep, lasting, spiritual hope that would give them both purpose for this life and confidence for the life to come. In particular, these people had no hope in the face of death. Death is the, the last great taboo in some ways in our culture. It is the one thing that no one really wants to talk about all that much. And yet, the reality that we have to face up to if we're not a Christian is that we face death hopelessly, without hope. 
And I suppose by the same token, if you are a Christian, then one of the defining characteristics of your life ought to be that you are a person of deep biblical hope. Even when your life is falling apart, even in the midst of tragedy and suffering and death, what it means to be saved means that we will be people of deep, lasting, enduring hope because we know that it won't always be like this, that this life is not all that there is and that one day there will be a new creation and we will be with Jesus ruling and reigning with him forever. Without hope and without God in the world is the last thing Paul says. Now again, it's not that they didn't have gods. These people, before they were Christians, they had gods for everything, right? In some ways, they were a deeply religious culture but they didn't have the one true God and particularly they didn't have relationship with the God who had made them. The whole essence of their religious life was that they were trying to coerce the gods into bringing them blessing. The more that they performed, the more that they sacrificed, the more that they lived in a manner that pleased the gods, the better their life would be. It is the antithesis to how the God of the Bible relates to his people, namely by grace, okay? They were without God in the world. St. Augustine, an early church father, once said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you know what that feels like. You know that deep down, underneath the facade, Your heart is restless. Let me tell you why that is. It's because you were made for relationship with your creator. And your heart will remain restless until you have that vertical relationship with your creator sorted out. And you can only have that sorted out through Jesus. So that's Paul's description of what life was like for these Ephesian Christians and what it was like for us before we were saved. It's a bleak description We're meant to read that verse and feel the heaviness and the darkness and the hopelessness of life without Jesus. And like I keep saying, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to read that verse and those experiences and know that that is your reality this morning. That you're separate from Christ. That you're cut off from his community, foreigners to the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And so you must be saved. That is your greatest need in the whole world, to be rescued by the Lord Jesus. And verse 13, the key verse, I think, in what we read, tells us about how that can happen. Verse 13, but now, Paul's explaining to these Christians what their experience is like now that they've trusted in Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, right, separated, all of that stuff we've just been looked at, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Just in that one verse, there's so much for us to learn about what it means to be saved. You'll notice, first of all, that Paul uses that little phrase, in Christ. If you're ever to read through the letter to the Ephesians, you'll see that by far and away, that is his most popular phrase. He loves reminding these Christians that they are in Christ. The language there is to convey a deep sense of 
intimacy. The language there is actually akin to, to what it means to be in a marriage union. That's how Paul wants Christians to think of themselves, united to Christ in the way that a husband is united to a bride. So it's not just that they are to follow Jesus' example, although they are to follow Jesus' example. It's not just that he is an insurance policy that will take them to heaven and one day he will take them to heaven. It's not just that he is a crutch to get them through the difficult times in their lives, although he will get them through the difficult times in their lives. It's that they are bound to him, united to him for better or for worse in an unbreakable bond and relationship. That's what it means to be a real biblical Christian. It is a position of incredible privilege and security. And so if you're really in Christ, then he has bound himself to you for better or for worse and he will never, ever, ever let you slip out of his hand. How has all of this been done for us? It's been done by the shedding of Jesus' blood. So let me ask you, have you ever thought about what it cost for you to become a Christian? Particularly if you grew up in the church, right, like I did, it can be very easy for you to think, well, actually, it didn't really cost that much for me to become a Christian. It's not true. It cost Jesus everything in order for you to become a Christian. He had to shed his blood in order that you might be saved. So in the Old Testament, how did the people of God get right with God? They did so through blood sacrifices. If you went to the temple in Jerusalem, the overwhelming sight and stench and noise that you would hear would be that of blood and sacrifice. It would have been a horrendous sight, smelly, scary perhaps even. And you know, as Jesus, we read about Jesus in the Gospels, when he approaches the temple at Jerusalem, I often wonder to myself, does he look around and see the blood that's everywhere? Does he look around and, and smell the stench of blood and guts filling his nostrils? Does he hear the shrieks of the animals as they're being sacrificed and think to himself, one day that will be me. It will be my blood that is shed for my people. It will be me that is shrieking in agony for my people. What did it cost for you to become a Christian? Everything. It cost Jesus everything. He has laid down his life in order for you to become a Christian. One of the principles that sort of helps me understand this is to think about the idea that in order for something to get clean, something else has to get dirty, right? It's a really simple principle. So how do you, how do you clean the dishes when you're washing up the dishes, the dishwater and the dishcloth has to get dirty, right? One of the things I'm a pro at at the minute is changing nappies, okay? How does the, the nappy and the, you know, bum, right, get clean? Something else, the wipe and the nappy has to get dirty, okay? How did your sinful, distorted, dirty heart get clean? Well, something else, someone else had to get dirty, and that's what happens at the cross. Jesus takes all of your sin and mess and shame and secrecy and the stuff you don't want anybody else to know about, he takes it upon himself willingly because he loves you. And as he gets dirty, sinful, messed up people like you and I can become clean. He has laid down his life so that you can have newness and fullness of life. He was cut off and excluded by the Father so that you can be welcomed by him forever. It cost him everything. 
It's the hope of the Christian. It's the heart of the gospel. It's how people like you and me can actually be saved. And let me just say here that it's really, really important that we understand that this is the only way for humanity to be saved. Notice when Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, he doesn't just say, well, you know, this is one way, this is one option to put alongside all of those other gods that you used to worship. There's no sense of that. He is very clear, there is one way for humanity to be right with God. It is through the shedding of the blood of Jesus on the cross in your place for your sins. We live in a culture where it is increasingly unpopular to say something like that. When, when one of you guys gets invited back to speak at Livewire in 10 years time, it will be even more unpopular to say things like that. But it is true, it is true. The Bible is absolutely unequivocal and unapologetic about that. There is one God and there is one way to be right with him. There is one way to be saved. It is through the blood of the Lord Jesus shed on the cross in your place for your sin. So we're drawing things to a close. Let me ask you a couple of questions, right, just to, to think about before we talk very briefly about the horizontal stuff. Do you see this morning how hopeless and helpless you are without Jesus? that your entire existence is diminished without him? And then do you see how much it has cost Jesus in order to win you back? Because the more you meditate on those things, the more you let the reality of what Jesus has done sink into your heart, the more that you will love him, the more you will want to serve him, the more that you will want to be part of his church. Do you see those things this morning? Because of Jesus, we can get what we don't deserve. That's grace, right? None of us get in on merit. It's all grace. Last thing, just before we, we finish, we've thought a lot about what it means to be saved, the vertical dimensions of our salvation. Let me talk briefly just about what it means then for our relationships with one another. And like I said, we're gonna spend most of the week talking about, about this stuff. But look with me very quickly at verses 14 and 16, 14 to 16. We're gonna read them. Paul says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God, it's the vertical, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So Paul is saying that Jesus has come to reconcile us to God, to make peace between God and mankind, but he is also saying that Jesus has come to create a new humanity who will be marked out by the peacefulness and love of their relationships with one another. And he's really clear, this new humanity will be unlike anything else the world has ever seen. It will include people from all backgrounds and different classes and different races and different ethnicities and different genders and different ages. It will include both Jew and Gentile. There is nothing, like I said earlier, in the whole world like the church. And you've got to understand this morning that if you're saved, if your relationship with God is right because of what Jesus has done, then you have been saved into the church. Get that? You've been saved into the church. If you belong to Jesus, then by definition, that means that we belong 
to one another. If you belong to Jesus, then we belong to one another. That has all sorts of implications about how we actually then live the Christian life with one another. But let me finish by by showing you a picture of your church family that I hope will help you understand this, right? It's a picture on the screen of what I want you to think about when you think about your church family, your local home congregation. It's as though we're all rocks and God has put us into a bag, the church, and he is shaking us around, right? Week upon week, month upon month, year upon year. And as God does that, we will collide with one another and sometimes sparks will fly, but gradually over time, each of us will become more smooth, more beautiful, more like Jesus. And get this, right? Each of these rocks that are in that bag, the church, your local congregation, have been chosen by God for your good and for his glory. You might have chosen other people. God has chosen the people that are in your church. He is using the different people, the contrasting personalities, the annoying people, the sinful people, because what other type of people are there? The people that you don't like the people that aren't like you, he is using them all to change you and to make you more like Jesus. See, once you guys understand that, it will change how you think about your church. It will help you to understand that being on the fringes isn't really an option, that not getting too close isn't really an option because as soon as we choose to distance ourselves from that, We are choosing to distance ourselves from one of the means by which God wants to use to change us and shape us more into the person of Jesus. So over the course of the rest of this week, we're gonna be thinking about what it means to be in this bag, to be part of the local congregation that God has us in so that we can be shaped more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment to pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this part of your word. We thank you that it reminds us of what our lives were like before we were in Christ. Father, we confess this morning that sometimes we don't think about those things as much as we should or we we treat them a bit lightly or flippantly or if we're really honest, we don't really think we were that bad and so we don't think as much of Jesus as we ought to. Please forgive us for that. Lord, help us to understand afresh today just how much it costs Jesus in order to make us part of his bride, the church. And help us then to understand both the great privilege and responsibility that it is to be the church in the places that you have placed us. Help us now as we go to our groups to chat about these things and give us conversations that will encourage us and bring you glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.